You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. When you grow your own food and you experiment with a range of vegetables and fruits, you you come to realize that so much of what we have in the supermarket just isn't nearly as lively. It just doesn't taste as good. And so when you really emphasize taste and you care about that, realize that there's a level of richness there that, that we've often forgotten. I can't really pinpoint what it is that I search for. I like to be around inspiring people. I like to be around fun people. Laughter is really important, and a, a learning environment is really important too. I see it more as a an opportunity for people to, to take one little ounce of health into their hands and, and be conscious of that. It's a special item that we need to be paying attention to. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo, and you're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 73, Savor airing for the first time on February 3rd, 2013. Life is meant to be savored, and what better way to do so than through food? In his book, Taste, Memory, author David Buchanan traces the experiences of modern-day explorers who rediscover culturally rich, forgotten foods and return them to our tables for all to experience and savor. We enjoy his insights as a farmer, gardener, and slow foods advocate. Hear about Maine's best savor spots from Eat Maine writer Amy Anderson. And have a conversation with Karina Napier of Sea Change about her work in the sea salt industry here in Maine. As a physician with training in Chinese medicine and acupuncture, I spend a lot of time talking with my patients about food. Many people come to me wanting to lose weight or change their body in some way. What I like to focus on, though, is how it is that we can enjoy foods and really bring the joy of cooking and eating and cultivating into our lives. How can we savor what we have in front of us so that it's not a constant struggle? This, I've found, is the most successful way to approach weight loss, but it's also the most successful way to approach eating is learning how to cook what you truly enjoy in a healthy way. We believe that our conversations with David Buchanan, Amy Anderson, and Karina Napier will enable you to find ways to savor your own life. Thank you for joining us. Recently at The Body Architect, I gave a talk on strengthening the immune system and offered a variety of different foods and other natural ways to keep people's immune systems strong in the winter. One tip that I remember from my mother way back was gargling with salt water. This was a very simple way to deal with a sore throat. And there is some science behind it. 
more and more of us are realizing that we need to go back to the things that our parents talked to us about to keep ourselves healthy. It's not anybody else's job but ours. For more thoughts on how to keep ourselves healthy, join me on our monthly wellness series at The Body Architect or become a patient by calling The Body Architect at 207-774-2196. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast has um, been a way for me to bring some of my thoughts and also the thoughts of um, area guests and thought leaders. I know I'm saying thought a lot, thoughts, feelings, emotions, passions about things like food um, to the airwaves. And the individual who's sitting across from me now certainly has a lot of thoughts and passion, emotion about food. Um, We have with us today David Buchanan, who is the author of Taste Memory. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Lisa. Wonderful to be here. Well, it's wonderful to meet you because I always enjoy reading a book, which I did. I got your book. I read through it and really kind of getting to know you that way. But then it's funny to see how people actually progress over the course of their life after they finish writing the book to where they are now. But first, let's go back. What caused you to write this book? I felt that I've, I've been reading so much about the local, hearing so much about the local food movement over the past five or six years, and to me there was another message that I wanted to to um, bring out into the world about heritage foods and and diversity, and the idea that local food isn't the same as food that's brought in from other parts of the world. That we can really establish our own distinct cuisine uh, specific to this place. It's interesting because in Chinese medicine, we talk a lot, and that's as I practice Chinese medicine, and we talk a lot about sort of eating the foods that have the essence of the place where you actually live and how that ends up being more healthy for you. And we've talked about this before on air that Maine seems to provide the foods that we need to live. Apples, that's one of the things that you're passionate about. Why apples? There are a lot of reasons that I get excited about apples, and it's partly because as a plant collector, I can still go out into the fields um, around Maine and to um, abandoned um, homesteads or even in urban settings and find old apple trees to, to collect. And so it's, it's, it's a piece of history that's still very much alive. We're all probably familiar with, with ancient apple trees that, that could be up to 200 years old um, growing by the side of the road or, or behind someone's home. And so that there's a real um, uh, vibrancy to to collecting apples um, but also because there's just so much uh, diversity in in the apple in, in apple history and in, and in apple growing um, in New England historically uh, it's estimated that in Maine um, farmers gardeners and home growers grew an estimated uh, 400 plus varieties of apples so there's this, there's this incredible richness there um, and and apples were served so many different uses. Maybe it was for for fresh eating or for making cider or for hard cider or pies. Um, Every apple can have its own particular ecological niche and and culinary use. And apples, they they will overwinter. We can actually, some of them can be stored. Is that true? Sure. There are summer apples that are best eating, that typically don't store at all, that are best eaten um, right off the tree or or baked in, in August. And then there are apples that that really don't reach their full potential until they've been stored for a month or two in a root cellar and should be eaten uh, from February onwards. 
I was struck when you were talking about different varieties of apples. I think you mentioned Honeycrisp as one that um, you kind of gave a little bit of background yeah, on. Right about. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting because you go into Hannaford or any grocery store and you see here's Honeycrisp and here's Macintosh and that's red delicious, green delicious, that's about it. But you're talking, you know, lots and lots of different varieties with lots of different tastes. Yes, uh, thousands of varieties. If you go, I, I write about going out to the National uh, Germplasm Collection, uh, the USDA's apple collection in Geneva, New York, and, and wandering through their 50-acre orchard and sampling from hundreds and thousands of varieties of apples, apples alone. And that same diversity is, is um, maybe not to quite that extent, but it is available in all kinds of crops. Um, but uh, yes, uh, if you go to the supermarket, you see just a handful of varieties. That's partly a function of the difficulty of marketing more than um, a dozen or, or, or so varieties. People just can't recognize them. And also because a lot of them are not even, they're not even from Maine. Um, a lot of the fruit that we're eating isn't from Maine. It's, it's really tough for Maine orchards to compete right now with higher volume um, production in other parts of the world. Um, and we don't, in, in some ways, our climate is, is a challenge for growing fruit. And so we're competing against Washington State or New Zealand or, or now China. Although we've been, Maine has been a farming state for centuries, so somehow we've made this work prior to the time that we were shipping things in from China and Washington State. We can and do. We've got a scrappy group of farmers in Maine and, and a very vibrant agricultural community. Talk to me about biodiversity. I think, you know, we just talked about apples and how there are certain things that we as consumers just get used to. We want certain tastes. Why is it important ecologically for us to consider biodiversity? It's, it's important to match a, a plant or, or an animal to a particular place. So let's say you're trying to grow an apple in central Maine and you have a certain set of conditions. You've got some rocky soil, got cold winters, um, maybe wet springs and a little bit of a dry period in the summer. It's a very different set of conditions from what a grower encounters out in Washington State, in central Washington State, which I also write about because I used to live there. I used to live uh, close to apple country in north central Washington, and there uh, the land is in the shadow of the, the North Cascade Mountains, and it's very dry. It's The winters are cold. The pest pressures are very different. And so when when we're thinking about, um, let's say, the pressure from a fungal disease or a particular pest, it's going to differ radically from place to place. And some apples will respond more, will, will have some natural defenses uh, against some of those pests or have a better adaptation to, to drought, maybe have a deeper root system. Some might thrive better in, in cold or, or warm weather. Uh, there are apples that are more regionally adapted to the south or the, or the mid-Atlantic or to northern Maine. There aren't that many apples that can survive up in Aroostook County, but there are a handful of apples like Duchess that, <clears throat> that are renowned for, for thriving in, in that difficult environment. And so if we're always depending upon a sort of apple, say it's, let's just say it's um, Golden Delicious from Hannaford, and something comes along that destroys that crop, some sort of weather situation, then that's it. 
Sure. Look at corn this summer with the drought that, that spreads so intensely across the, the south and the Midwest. And we have um, hundreds of thousands of acres of or millions of acres in any one state uh, planted entirely to corn and typically to just one strain, one line of corn. And so if something come al comes along, say uh, a, a, a heat wave while that corn is trying to pollinate or, um, or, or maybe a pest at the wrong moment or a disease has the, the potential to spread like wildfire. So in contrast, if you can diversify what you're planting, even if you're planting several different kinds of corn, you may have pollination occurring at different moments, uh, one week to the next, and you'll have a better chance of getting a crop. Which maybe now isn't quite as important, but if we think back to Ireland and the potato famine, it certainly was very Absolutely. important. Absolutely. Yes. It's important today, too. Uh, diversity matters, and, and adaptation to local local environment matters in terms of the amount of spray we have to use, in terms of the, the health of the crop, the the success of the farm. Well, and it also seems to matter from a health standpoint. I mean, we have to be able to get used to eating different types of foods. We have to be able to expose ourselves to different types of environments because when we don't do that, we get ill. It's dull, too. It's boring to eat the same thing day after day. I like to experiment with different apples. And to me, there's a tremendous cultural richness, just to go back to apples, in that diversity. If you think about all the, the uses and, and the subtleties of it, when, when Mainers historically knew that one apple made the best apple butter, and one, like, let's say, a Northern Spy or a Baldwin made the best pie, and, and then another was perfect for cider or perfect for eating at a particular time. To think that we can substitute all those uses and, and take just, and try to get all of that out of one apple, just to take Honeycrisp, does that replace everything? Can you, it, it's a great apple, it's, a, it's uh, I really enjoy eating Honeycrisp, but, but can it, is it the end, is it the, the only fruit? Can it, can it substitute for all that richness? Is this one of the reasons why you were involved with Slow Foods? There are a lot of reasons I've been involved with Slow Foods, yes, uh, I, but the, the emphasis on regionality and tradition and the pleasures of the table uh, really resonates with me, um, as, as well as its embrace of ecology, its, a, its understanding that to be uh, that a thriving, successful, healthy agriculture has to be rooted in place in, in, with an, an environmental awareness. And the, also this idea of taste, and the name of your book obviously is Taste Memory. So there is this taste aspect, this joy, this pleasure, this savoring. When you grow your own food and you experiment with a range of vegetables and fruits, you, you come to realize that so much of what we have in the supermarket just isn't nearly as lively. It just doesn't taste as good. And it's not just the freshness, it's also that the variety, there, anytime you set out to grow something, you have to balance certain compromises. You have to, you have to choose between <clears throat> emphasizing yield or pest resistance or pest resistance or flavor or any number of other factors. And the commercial grower probably won't come down in the same place on that spectrum that the home grower will or the small the small farmer. And so when you really emphasize taste and you care about that, um, begin to elevate it above some of the other concerns, um, 
realize that there's a level of richness there that, that we've often forgotten. Do you think that we might be able to convince people to have a more diverse and healthy diet by introducing them to things that taste more interesting and perhaps even better? I hope so. For me, getting involved with slow food has been an education. I don't think that I had the most refined taste. I still don't. I'm pretty humble about that. But my palate has developed, and, and I have an appreciation for flavor that adds a lot to, to my life personally. And you also have an appreciation for actually getting your hands in the dirt, getting your yourself exposed to the soil, and really savoring that aspect of bringing the food to your table. There's something really satisfying about being a, a gardener, and I consider myself a gardener first and foremost, although my gardens are, are growing year to year. I, I find there's a lot of pleasure to, um, to harvesting something and bringing it to, to the table. How did somebody like you get into what could some people would say could be pretty hard work, this gardening and heritage foods. I mean, in reading through your book, you are originally from Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and you have a pretty nice degree from a pretty good institution, and you could have done really anything you wanted to, but one of the first things it sounds like you did was go out to Washington State and muck around in irrigation fields where you could have been <laughs> electrocuted by... Well, mm-hmm. I ask myself that all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It, I, I'm realistic about the, the challenges. It, it's, it, farming isn't glamorous in a lot of ways. I find it satisfying on a lot of levels. I think I'm driven by strong feelings for the environment, strong feelings about biodiversity, uh, a concern for saving these foods. To me, there's a mission there that's really important and exciting and, and worth giving myself to. And I, I enjoy working with my hands a lot. I can't imagine sitting in an office. It just doesn't, it's just not me. I need, I need a lot of stimulation and diversity. And this offers that. Every day is different. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. From David Buchanan's book, Taste Memory, we run across the quote, you must eat it to save it. And yet just because you ate it doesn't mean it didn't go to waste. Money's like that too. You must work to save all the money you didn't spend, but then it becomes someone's job to give it another purpose. So what then is this relationship with money we call the saver? You feel a very acute desire to save because cash is accumulating. You save into a 401k. You save for education. On paper, financial growth is happening. And yet, it feels like you have nothing for today, nothing to savor. You may feel burdened and disconnected with the money set aside for tomorrow. You may take risks because you have money, but miss opportunities because you can't access it. You feel split between two realities. You have one foot in your financial past and the other, At best, it's in the future. To explore this more, send an email to info at shepherdfinancialmain.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. 
There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. What has it been like to go from really this very hands-on gardening and growing and you also spend time in the farmer's market selling and to writing and doing something that's very cerebral and also going out and talking to people on MPBN and hear about your book. I mean, that's a very interesting sort of back and forth in your life. It's a strange balance. And, and again, it's it's my nature that I like diversity. So I might spend a few hours mucking around in the dirt and then come home to the computer. I, I wrote a lot of the book over the winters, um, over the past three years. And certainly getting out and publicizing it now has been a new experience. It's very different from my day-to-day life. I'm a pretty private person, so that's been odd. Um, but I, again, I, I, like, I like the balance. And, and the book feeds into everything else I want to do because, as I said earlier, I don't really consider myself a farmer. I think of myself as a gardener and a plant collector. And the book will enable me to build on that side of the growing. What are some of the challenges that you've experienced with this path that you've taken? You've been doing this for now 20 years? No, not exactly. I I did it part-time when I lived in Washington state and I was I was bitten by the the bug of collecting heritage foods and so I had my own gardens and collected all kinds of grains and vegetables and fruit trees. And then I stopped. I moved back to the East Coast. I moved to Boston. I I took an office job. I worked for a few years there. I did design work up in Maine after that uh, and in Massachusetts. And so it was really only when I got involved with Slow Food, I helped found and then led the Portland chapter for three years, that I started feeling myself pulled back into this world of food, borrowed some space at a friend's farm, started growing vegetables, and couldn't help myself. And it's just, it's just expanded from there. And have there, been, have there been challenges? I mean, you've had a, I think I was saying to you on the phone, one of my favorite quotes is, all who wander are not lost. This is a Tolkien <laughs> quote. And certainly, you've done some wandering in your career path. Have there been challenges associated with that? Well, there are all kinds of challenges. For one thing, we live in downtown Portland. And I've never really been exactly a country person, though I've lived out in rural Washington state and didn't want to just go out and, and be on a rural farm. So we've leased, I've, I've leased land. Uh, my partner Carla, my fiance Carla, works up in Augusta and, and in Portland, and so she's not really involved with the growing. So it's really my project. I've leased land in and around Portland, and it's it's a real challenge. We we no longer have our um, our land use arranged for agricultural production largely. If you go back a couple of generations, 50 years, Cape Elizabeth was a farming community. 
producing strawberries, lettuce, other crops for for markets down in Massachusetts and farther. And that's no longer the case. There's still some some wonderful farms there, but but a lot of the land is, has gone to residential development, as is much of the suburban landscape around Portland and most American cities. It's not like going to Europe where zoning and land use has been very carefully restricted to preserve agricultural land. That, simply finding a place to grow, finding a, a place to do my project was probably the most difficult thing I've had to face. Just getting started, in other words, was the hardest thing. And as you know, someone like Rod, Dr. Rodney Voisin on Cape Elizabeth has been wonderful in opening up his his door to me and letting me grow there. And I've, I've had some wonderful experiences with landowners around Portland letting me um, beg and borrow space from them. And it's important to get outside of Portland to some extent. In fact, you talked about, I was very struck when you were talking about rooftop gardening in urban settings and the challenges associated with yes, clean the soil. desperation. <laughs> yes, right. So, I mean, there are some very, I mean, soil isn't soil uniformly. I mean, there are some soils that are healthier than others. It's, has that also been part of the issue is you need to find... Sure, finding the right soil is, is definitely a part of it. You, you can't grow fruit trees as I, I'm increasingly fascinated by all the nuances of, of all kinds of fruit trees. And you you need good drainage. You don't want to plant them in a heavy clay soil. Uh, good sunlight, ideally some elevation to get away from springtime frost. And that's a challenge finding <laughs> within within a half an hour of Portland. Uh, so yes, there, there are all kinds of considerations. Uh, chemical contaminations, another thing I write about um, that's invisible and, and often really hard to assess. Another thing that I, again, going back to your time, I think it was in Washington State that I was just so struck by was this sense that choosing to be a small a gardener and really have your livelihood depend upon that or to be a farmer and to do that for a living, I mean, it's it's not without its risks. I mean, you talk about having gotten quite ill, I believe, from dehydration and you went to the emergency room and they treated you and you would spend all your wages for some... And I wasn't dependent on those wages at the time. It wasn't that that was something I, I was working part time, at, at irrigating a ranch, partly maybe from for the romance of it. And I, so I worked three hours in the morning and three hours in the evening, and I was doing other things as well. And the 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 money was it was negligible as as it is for so many farm workers. It, 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 that was four fifty an hour. It was nothing, um, and it, it's not much higher for a lot of agricultural workers today. But I, I write about that about that to help give a sense of what the world looks like from a producer's perspective, from a farm worker's perspective. I was doing it also because I, I knew a lot of farm workers in that that part of the world. Um, spent a lot of time with some some wonderful um, friends from the highlands of Oaxaca who were farm workers, and I saw what their lives were like, and I thought, well, I, let me try, let me see if I can do a bit of this. And it was really brutal. It was really difficult. Um, I worked as fast as I could, and it was never fast enough. And I got very dehydrated and sick and wound up in the emergency room and went on an IV, and that swallowed a month's wages right there. And I can't even imagine trying to live that way, to really try to make a living doing that and, and raise a family and what a challenge it is.
What are things that people who are listening right now um, could be doing? I know it's it's winter time, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot growing outside. But what types of things do gardeners do in the winter to prepare for the spring or the summer, or other things that can be grown inside? Well, for the home gardeners, you can certainly extend your season a lot with a small hoop house or a cold frame. You can grow greens well into the winter, even in a small cold frame, and then they'll often start again, depending on the severity of the winter in, in the spring. It's Our farmers are really pushing the boundaries of the season. Uh, we really do have a very creative and energetic farming scene around Portland and throughout Maine. And so it's possible to buy winter shares of community-supported agriculture, uh, CSA operations, or uh, local food is now available year-round. It's it's uh, with a with a hoop house, a grower, a, a plastic-covered hoop house, a grower can can raise foods through the winter, even in Maine. Um, it it's amazing, really. It keep the keep the snow off and and. Uh, the temperatures get up during the day, and, and most a lot of hardy greens will survive through the winter and can be can be picked. And and of course, with a root cellar, you can keep uh, root vegetables going all year long. I, I store root crops and in a basement very well into into June. What have you learned as an individual through this journey that you've taken, whether it's working out in Washington State or coming back here and working in Cape Elizabeth? I think I've learned that you have to be persistent. If you have something that you really care about, you, you really have to dig your heels in and, and keep at it. It, it. The reason we if we follow something that we really feel passionate about, the reason we succeed in the end is sheer persistence and stubbornness. And where are you going from here? We have recently purchased land in Pownall, um, just a few minutes from Freeport, and my my goal there is to create a kind of conservation center for these foods. In some ways, it's a compromise. It's a, it's not exactly apple-growing country, but I, I want to make it work for um, my passion right now, which is hard cider, but for other, other production as well, I'll have all kinds of fruits uh, and vegetables, and maybe we'll have some animals too. And building, turning one of the um, outbuildings into a small commercial kitchen and cider house, so I can do some hard cider. And I have now probably about 150 varieties of apples, uh, a couple dozen varieties of pears, all kinds of peaches and plums, apricots, cherries, small fruits. I want to expand that collection. So the dream is to create a kind of cornucopia of. Uh, big garden out there and and to encourage and to find ways to bring the public in and um, get people out there and um, find uh, avenues to distribute the, the plant material and share it. I, I believe that th- these historic foods aren't really alive unless they're being grown and eaten, that it's not enough to just keep them in a gene bank. So I really want to find their hidden potential, help bring them back into the market, help get them into the hands of gardeners, make them make them live uh, on our tables in our gardens. And come spring, you'll be back at the farmer's market in Portland? Yes, I just do the Saturday market with my, my smoothie cart, and I sell some, some nursery plants, too. So if people want to find you there in the spring, they can find you there? They can find me at Deering Oaks Park, yes. And if people would like to buy your book, what's the best way of going about doing that? 
They can go directly to Chelsea Green, uh, my publisher's website, and they can buy it there. They can also buy it through online retailers or through local bookstores. It's distributed nationally, and um, so it, it, they should be able to find it. Or they can go to my website, originsfruit.com, and see some photos of places in the book and find some contact information there, too. And your book has been called one of the top small food books from Amazon. I, you, you sent me this, and I was... And Amazon ranked it at, you know, among their top 10 food literary books of the year. I was very, a little shocked <laughs> and very pleased. It just came out um, back in um, early November, so it's a, it's a new book, and I didn't hadn't occurred to me that anyone even had time to read it over there yet. Well, I was impressed with it, and I Thank would you. encourage people that are listening to us right now to go out and take some time reading it. Especially, it's a good book to read, I think, in the winter. It's very thought-provoking. It's wide-ranging. Um, it make you dream of spring. Yes, it does make you dream of spring. So we've been talking with David Buchanan, author of Taste Memory, Forgotten Foods, Lost Flavors, and Why They Matter. We appreciate your spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure for me. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, the Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit thebodyarchitect.com or call 207-774-2196 and get started with The Body Architect today. And by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendonitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. One of my favorite things to do in the world is eat really good food. And in Maine, we're pretty fortunate because there's really good food in a lot of places up and down the coast. Portland, Camden Rockport, Kenny Bunkport. And one person who knows all about good food is Amy Anderson, who is now your point person for Maine Magazine and also a Food Eat Maine blogger. Thanks for coming in and talking to me, Amy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, I can't wait to pick your brain about all of the wonderful places that Maine has to offer, the, the eaters of, of the state. There are so many great places in the state to eat. It is, it's difficult to, you know, pin down the best. And I think that's what's so nice about Maine is you can go to a, um, an array of different areas and check out, you know, a bistro or a fine dining place or a diner and find something really spectacular all over the place. Um, I'm really comfortable with Portland restaurants, um, you know, waiting tables at Hugo's and Eventide. Um, and this is my home base too, so I'm, I know about this area. And, you know, writing for Maine Magazine and being able to write the blog, um, I've been able to travel a little bit and see what, what, what else is out there. And there's some wonderful things out there. 
Well, you have an interesting background because the first time you and I met, you were actually working for a different local publication. Mm -hmm. And I had just put together the book, Our Daily Tread for Safe Passage, and you Mm -hmm. interviewed me. (laughs) So that's kind of, we're turning the the tables. Exactly, right? (laughs) So you have this background, not only as a writer Mm -hmm. and a writer within the community, Mm -hmm. but also in the food world. Mm -hmm. And now you're bringing them both together. So that must be really interesting for you. It's very interesting. I think my whole life I've really been on these parallel tracks of writing and journalism on one side and being in the restaurant business on the other. And I've always wanted to combine the two. It's always been, you know, a passion of mine to to write about food. I love writing and I love food. So it seemed to make sense to bring them together. And finally, with the main magazine, this has happened. And it's so exciting that I get to do the writing part of it and the eating part. And I still get to wait tables. So I'm completely involved um, in all aspects of things I love. So right, coming from a journalism background, um, you know, is nice because I get to maybe look at the people who work in the restaurants and, and ask them questions and, and talk to the cooks and, and use that background for the blogs and for the journalism part of the main magazine. Um, but it's really the love of food that comes out, I think, in my writing, and, and, and that's what's important. And the two places that you are um, waiting tables at are known for really good food mm-hmm. in very different and interesting ways. Mm-hmm. You are at Hugo's Restaurant and also at Eventide, mm-hmm. um, and they're right right next to each other. Exactly. One has been around for a long time and well-known within the mm-hmm. community, in fact, probably nationally and possibly mm-hmm. internationally. One is within the last year or so. Oh, yeah, like six months. <laughs> but they're both known for being mm-hmm. real food destinations. Absolutely. What has that been like to work with people who are in that sort of higher level of food love, let's right. say. Well, I think um, my progression in my career in, in restaurants has gone in that direction, you know, starting at something like the, the lobster cooker in, in Freeport in, in high school and then, you know, moving to North Carolina and getting more into uh, fine dining and being introduced to places that cook at the James Beard House and then moving back home and realizing that Hugo's, um, you know, was hiring and they actually wanted me to work there and it was this kind of um, being around people who just revere food and who really take it seriously and more than that want their customers to enjoy you know something a little bit different or a little bit you know unusual and and that that's just exciting to be around I learn every day and and what's more exciting is getting people to um, feel that excitement and and appreciate it and somebody who comes in and is nervous about eating you know, something like a blind tasting. They don't, they, they're not in control and they don't know what it is. Um, to take those first couple bites and get comfortable and enjoy it and realize it's fun and it's, it's food and it's not that big of a deal. It's a good time, you know, like enjoy it and eat it and share it with friends and talk about it. And I think that's the mentality of Hugo's is, you know, take, take this food and enjoy it. And, and it's elevated, um, but it's fun. And that fun definitely translates to Eventide. Um, it is a light, bright, happy, just wonderful place to be. Um, the food is unreal, and it's it's really satisfying for me as a server to say, you know, I can recommend anything, and I know that they'll like it. I really do. I know that they'll enjoy it. So I don't know. I really enjoy working in both places, and I think, you know, if I can share that passion that I have about the food in those two places and share that with the readership of the main magazine, um, you know, this would be a great partnership. 
Well, tell me about some of the other places that you've visited and blogged about. One of my favorites, I think, was one of your first, and that was the green elephant. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorites because I tend to eat more Mm -hmm. plant-based foods. Was that a challenge for you, considering that you don't consider yourself a vegetarian? No, it wasn't a challenge. It was it was it was a fun learning experience. I hadn't seen some of those foods before, um, and was just blown away at how beautiful they were presented and how delicious they tasted. And there was no meat, and I love that. And I think that you know, moving forward in all the restaurants that I've been going to, I try really hard to put in. Um, a vegetarian order or a gluten-free order just just to see and for as much you know I, I'm learning um, people who enjoy those types of diets might want to read about those instead of the you know meat focused um, writing so you know we'll see we'll see what happens with me going forward and and ordering more vegetarian items but um, green elephant was for sure fun and it's special because it was my first um, blog for the main magazine so um, yeah, that one that one was fun to do, for sure. And on the other side of it, I believe you went up to Primo, mm-hmm. and, and they have a reputation of basically doing, what, nose to tail? Is that what I understand? Every uh, fall, they slaughter their animals and have, like, a big um, celebration um, of respect for their life and, and thanks for, you know, the animal themselves. So I did. I went up and tried a nose to tail tasting, and that was very meat-centric. <laughs> and it was delicious and fun and um yeah, I'm experiencing a lot of different things and hopefully sharing, you know, this information with, with the readers. What do you have on the docket coming up? I know you just did Sea Glass mm-hmm. not too long ago mm-hmm. out at In by the Sea. I visited from Viendu in Camden and what an amazing place. The chefs there had worked at 555 and traveled and opened their new place in Camden and it is French peasant food, elevated and amazing um but you know i think i say that about every place that i go i know you seem very enthusiastic (laughs) about all of these places they are they are even if they're not new to me you know going in with a different set of eyes and going in you know from a different perspective is is all very new and exciting so i'm really having a good time Amy, it's clear from your enthusiasm that you've, you're doing something that you love, whether it's um, being part of Hugo's or Eventide or blogging online or writing for Maine Magazine. Um, you've surrounded yourself with things that you love to do and places you love to be, food you love to eat. How did you get to that place? So many people don't. That is true. That is very true. I, um, I think by combining my love of food and my love of writing, I've always had... Um, jobs that that I've really enjoyed um, and, and when I found that I no longer enjoy them or I'm not learning or I'm not happy um, I seek something else out and that's happened in a progression of restaurants it's happened in a progression of writing jobs you know I I can't really pinpoint what it is that I search for I do know that I I, I like to be around inspiring people I like to be around um, fun people. Um, Laughter is really important. Um, And a a learning environment is really important too. And I feel like with food and with writing, you can just continue to to grow. Um, You can learn new things, you can taste new things, share new things with people. And, you know, I I really feel like I found that in, in Hugo's. And from that point, 
things have branched off. You know, connections were made with Maine Magazine and that new restaurant Eventide opened up and I was able to um, have a part in all of that. So, you know, it's really important to me just to just to be surrounded by um, friends and family. And that's what all of these places have become for me. So you opened yourself up to some doing the things that you love to do and Absolutely. being with people that you love to be with. Absolutely. And I, and I would say that having spent time at both Hugo's and Eventide and um, been in the food community, that there is a sense of family mm, that, that seems to emerge and, and the sense of community. And I know that we interviewed Arlen Smith last year, and I've spent time with him and with Roxanne mm-hmm. from also from um, Hugo's. And it's more than just the food and the taste of things. Mm-hmm. It's how things sort of fit together in life, Absolutely. how you savor what's going on around you, whether it's going into your mouth or whether it's sort of mm-hmm. the energy of the people. It's so true. It's a, it's a community. It's more than a community. It's, it is a family. Um, you know, we all play off of each other's strengths and help each other with each other's weaknesses. And, you know, there's a, in a restaurant, there's, there's so much happening all the time that you have to learn how to click and you have to learn um, how to interact with each other. And I think once that happens, once that magic happens, then that can you know, be portrayed to the customers and they get it and they feel it. And um, I think that's similar to you know, the blog and writing for the main mag is I think I really enjoy the food aspect of that and I want people to read and enjoy um, you know, what I'm writing, because maybe they can take that information and, and check out a few places that they might not have wanted to before. They might not be vegetarians, but they might love to go to the Green Elephant. Because it, it's delicious and it's fun and they read it and, you know, who knows? Where can people read about these wonderful restaurants and these experiences that you're having, Amy? Definitely on the Maine Magazine's website. Um, there is a blog section and um, I want to say every two weeks or so, there's a brand new restaurant listed up there. So you can get a whole plethora of restaurants and ideas, places to eat all in Maine. Um, Facebook, obviously, uh, there's an Eat Maine page in Facebook, and uh, they tweet as well. So, And I do, too. So, <laughs> And there's also an Eat Maine guide, I believe, that's coming out pretty absolutely. soon. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we've been speaking with Amy Anderson, who is a blogger with Eat Maine and a contributing editor to Maine Magazine. She's been speaking with us about savoring not only food, but life and relationships and community. We've been really um, privileged to have you spend time with us today, Amy. Thank you. Thank you so much. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. And by Booth, accounting and business management services, payroll, and bookkeeping. Business is done better with Booth. Go to boothmaine.com for more information. The title of this show is Savor, and when we think about savoring things, we can't um, escape the fact that adding a little bit of salt actually helps make things more savory. So we thought it might be a good chance to interview somebody who deals directly with salt, and in fact, salt from the coast of Maine, and this is Karina Napier, and she is the founder of Sea Change, 
which brings salt to the masses from the coast of Maine. <laughs> thank you for coming in and talking to us today. Yes, hi. Thank you for having me. So, Karina, you're, you're a young woman, and you've done other things besides this work. How did you come to be interested in salt? I have to say it was actually a bit of a, a, bit of a fluke. Um, a lot of things led me up to this point. I was living in New York City and going to school there, and I tactfully planned my escape route via the Peace Corps. And um, I went to West Africa and I lived in Benin for two and a half years. And there, I, um, although I had come with a pretty strong background in my passion for the environment and for food, it was there that I really dealt with a lot of it firsthand and really in my face. Um, there were a lot of a lot of people dealing with malnutrition and access to healthy food generally. I experienced it myself. I noticed that my health greatly degraded in that period of time and really two and a half years isn't very long. So to understand people who were living there their entire lives and to see how it would affect them really gave me a lot to think about. Um, and coincidentally, when I got back to the United States, nutrition and food and where we're getting it is a huge topic for us. I mean, it's everywhere we look, in our media, um, talking with our neighbors and our friends. And so it was still on my mind and still a part of me, very much so. And so I went out to California to work on a farm. And um, before I left, I had a very wonderful encounter with a gentleman here in Maine who um, wanted to hire me to work on his farm. And uh, didn't work out for timing, bad season arrangements and that kind of thing. But when I returned, we kept in touch. And um, he wanted me to grow tomatoes on his, on his land. And it was also, again, like the wrong timing. It just didn't work out. And, but we kept talking. And he wanted to harvest sea salt. And I, coming back from California, had learned so much about um, the popularity of seaweed and how valuable it is to our health. And so that was my idea, like, let's harvest seaweed. We've got a massive supply here in Maine and a wonderful opportunity that hasn't really been explored 100%. So we started to do that, and um, with perseverance and patience, we found a sea salt supplier in Lubeck, Maine. And while we explored seaweed very thoroughly, our leads weren't taking us where we wanted them to go, and so we dropped that, which I hope is temporarily. Hopefully we'll pick that back up again. Um, and also by the time it was ready to go on the shelves, this old Mainer was bored with salt. He was like, you know what, I'm good. I don't need to do this anymore. You take over from here. And so I have since then, and so I've kept the company going and the idea going, and here I am today. We know that salt as a mineral is very important for health, and there has been some controversy about salt. In fact, we've a lot of people have been put on salt-restrictive diets over the last say 40 years because mm. of blood pressure issues. Yeah. But we're coming back around to understanding that not everybody is salt sensitive and in mm -hmm. fact the right kinds of salt are very important to health. Right. Did that lead into your decision to um, work on getting this product out there? Yeah, very much so. Um, when we first started exploring this idea, I knew that I'd have to care about it. Um, I learned very early on from my father when he was a salesman when he was like, you know, a teenager making money for school. The key ingredient is you have to care about what it is that you're selling. And 
Learning about salt gave me so much information to absorb, and that is definitely one of them, that salt, sea salt in particular, is a key ingredient that we all consume every single day. And if we are eating the right kind of salt, it doesn't have to affect us negatively. And informing ourselves about what it is that we are putting into our bodies, sea salt is definitely one of those ingredients that can help us feel better. What are the differences between um, the right kind of salt and salt that really isn't that beneficial for us? Um, well, let's see. So table salt, which is what most of us are familiar with, um, is typically mined from inland. And to get rid of impurities or to make it look cleaner, um, the salt is bleached. It is um, also filled with anti-caking agents so that the salt doesn't clump. And any of those chemicals that are used in that process are bad for our bodies. And it also is removing the minerals that we need that are, that are natural in that salt. And so with sea salt, at least with mine, I can say for mine at least, um, is it doesn't go through a bleaching process. It does not have any anti-caking agents. And since it is coming from the ocean, it has more minerals. Mine has magnesium, potassium, and calcium, for example. Although these are in small quantities, considering we're using it every day, this is going to help create balance in our body. Which is different from regular table salt, which is um, typically a sodium chloride, is that correct? That's correct. Once the salt has been bleached, all of the impurities, as they're called by industry standards, have been removed. So that means all the minerals have been taken out too. So you are left with strictly sodium and strictly chloride. Briefly talk to me about how it is that one harvests sea salt. Yeah, it's an interesting process. I would imagine that there's multiple ways to have it to have it harvest. We use, um, when I say we, it's really the gentleman who lives up in Lubeck who's supplying me with my salt, but he uses a pumping and filtering method. So the salt goes through a 10 micron filter where rocks, seaweed particles are left out and only the salt is brought in. Um, it goes through a um, goes through a couple processes from there bringing it down to a brine and then it's laid out on tables to dry for a certain period of time and then raked and then laid out again for um, the drying process into a crystal. And this takes about a week and depending on what kind of grain you're looking for, then it's, break, it's broken down even more. Um, there's also apparently you can have it much drier, so if it goes into a shaker, I mean, there's so many different ways to create salt that I never would have even imagined. All of this reminds me that um, traditionally salt was considered a treasure. It was something that people traded that, that you didn't use a lot of because, yeah. as you described, the process that was once used, I think, universally mm -hmm. was quite extensive. Um, the salt that you're selling now yeah. really is, is like that, too. It's in the little package that I went and bought from Whole Foods. I mean, it, you really do treasure it. It's not just right. some commodity. Yeah, I think it's become, the value has certainly decreased. I mean, we used to use it as a form of money once upon a time. And now I see it more as a, an opportunity for people to, to take one little ounce of health into their hands and, and be conscious of that. Um, ideally, it'd be wonderful if everybody knew that this was something for them, whether they care about um, cooking or not, or whether or not they have time for cooking. But right now, it is. It's, it's, a special, it's a special item that we need to be paying attention to. So does picking up 
some sea change, sea salt from yeah. Whole Foods or Lois's Natural Marketplace or one of the many places that you're going to tell us about. Yeah. Um, does this help people savor their lives and savor the food that they're cooking? That's the passion behind it. I mean, that's certainly the idea. I know that not everybody's going to have the same stance as I do when it comes to something like this. I mean, salt, a lot of us aren't paying attention to it. I, I get that. Um, but to know that that's the position behind the company, I hope so. I hope that's what people can get. So where can people find it? Um, mostly in local stores here in Maine so far. Um, Whole Foods does carry it and sells out really well. Lois's in Scarborough, Macucci's, Morning Glory out in Brunswick, um, Bath Natural Foods, um, all the way up through Camden also. Uh, French and Braun carries it as well. Belfast Food Co-op, they seem to be carrying very well. Um, and my uncle has a store in Keene, New Hampshire called Your Kitchen Store, and he carries it for me there. Karina, do you have a website or a Facebook page? Yeah, we have both. Seachangework.com. Um, for the website and Facebook backslash seachangemain, I believe, .com, but you can just type in seachange in Facebook and you'll find us really easily. Well, Karina, you've taken a very interesting product and brought it to market in an interesting way. So thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. This has been great. Sharing your salt with us. Oh, yeah. Urge our listeners to go out and um, find some sea change, sea salt, and perhaps experiment with their own cooking. Yeah, I hope so. That would be wonderful. Thank you. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 73, Savor. Our guests have included author David Buchanan, Amy Anderson of Eat Maine, and Karina Napier of Sea Change. For more information on our guests, visit Dr. Lisa doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's shows, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, doctorlisa, and read my personal take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.org. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that our show inspires you to savor your world. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Courtney Taberge. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Mm-hmm.